load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to episode 99 of Weekly Weights Can you believe that, Will? 99 I can't, and at the same time, I can. It's been, you know, when you're in pain for so long, you forget about it. <laughs> it's been a little bit like that. But 99 weeks of listening to your shit. Well, it's more like 99 weeks of listening to your shit, given you speak for at least three times longer than me every episode. Yeah, I know, but that's that's to try and give a buffer between all the dumb things that you say, you know? <laughs> The dumb things I say are nothing to the dumb things I think, Will. <laughs> the worst thing is the dumb things I say are nothing compared to the dumb things I think. And I go well off the deep end pretty yes, well every fair. episode. Um, anyway, this is week four and a half of isolation. Is and uh, it's been? we're pretty bored. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I am also bored though. So I agree. Um, we've... This episode is technically a Q&A episode. We're also going to debut a new section, which I can assure you we actually invented called Variation Masterclass. This one's not one that I ripped off a basketball podcast, Alex, or perhaps another <laughs> another fitness podcast that neither of us have listened to. Actually, on that front, I think we should address Kevin Bacon CK again. So people, if you're not aware, last episode we spoke about an accusation of plagiarism, which it turned out was absolutely correct, made against Alex in the case of one of our segments, overrated, underrated, properly the, pla- the plagiarism was correct, but the source of which the plagiarism came from was incorrect. Yeah, so Alex <laughs> Alex made sure to, to really delve into the semantics of, about why it's not fair to accuse him of plagiarism unless you can guess the source properly. But Kevin Bacon writes to us, Obviously not the real Kevin Bacon, a guy whose Insta handle was Kevin Bacon, writes to us, tells us that. We address the controversy. Alex gets a little bit aggressive, I would say, um, but but pretty much just backs himself and says it's not fair to to address the plagiarism even when you're right. And, and well, I got a message. That, the aggression that I said was nothing to the aggression that I thought either. <laughs> well, I got a message two days after that episode released from none other than Kevin Bacon himself on Instagram, came out of the shadows and said, you know, hi, I'm sorry. I was drunk when I wrote that review. I'll fix my grammar. I really appreciate your podcast. And I think when somebody goes to the effort to, to do that, you've got to say thank you. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, 100%. Thank you, Kevin Bacon. You're a legend. He is a legend. And I, I do like that that's a nice way to sort of tie together um, this little conflict that we've had with Kevin which I wouldn't even call it a conflict. I call it a feud. It's nice to be able to finish that feud on a positive where we're all feeling good about each other. So you get another shout out. Squash the beef, Will. Squash the beef. You're a good bloke. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. Do you think maybe we should name the segment after him now? We'll call it the Kevin Bacon Memorial, even though he's still alive. Underrated, properly rated. (laughs) Yeah, we'll call it that. Okay, but before we get there, we got another couple of segments to get through. These ones are more or less original. And the first one is one that we're debuting today. And we're calling it Variation Masterclass. Alex, do you want to improvise some theme music for Variation Masterclass quickly? No. (laughs) 
I'll do it. It goes variation master class. And what it is, when you hear that music sung by Alex, when you hear that music, you know, we're going to talk about a variation of the competition lifts. We're going to talk about um, how the variation differs from the main lift in terms of the biomechanical demands and the execution demands and what that means in terms of like developing strength through a movement um, muscularly. Then we'll talk about its potential benefits and where, where in a program we might find it more or less appropriate to use and what types of loading strategies we've tended to find effective with it. Now, I put a poll out on my Instagram asking people what they wanted us to talk about and I got some pretty good responses. Um, so I'm going to read a few of the perhaps less serious responses and then tell you the one that we've decided to go with. So we were asked, do you know what a reverse pretzel press is, Alex? I presume that's a troll. Well, that was asked by, by your client, Craig Allen. I haven't the faintest clue what that is. So if it's a troll, it's not even a troll that I understand. Um, somebody asked the lift to work. Um, I presume that mean getting a lift to work, but I have no idea. Then we got deficit 5020 tempo band of deadlifts with one and a half pump reps. That was by Mackenzie Baker. This does sound like something he would do, if I'm honest. Um, and then we also got calf raise by Jacob Skepis. Um, but I decided to forego all of them. And there was one lift that was actually requested three times, which is more than any other. That was close grip bench press. So Alex, maybe you want to just introduce close grip bench and tell us um, what changes about it positionally and in terms of biomechanical demands as opposed to a normal bench. So if I was Thomas Lilly, um, my answer would be the difference between a normal bench press and a close grip bench press is that our group is closer. I personally back that in entirely. <laughs> what else? Anyway, so yeah, the close grip bench will generally have like a shoulder width or slightly wider than shoulder width grip position. Um, because of the position of the hands, it's actually a little bit harder to control your scapula. So it can be harder for people to set an arch. So you'll generally see people who close grip bench press with slightly reduced arch. And I actually will emphasize my lifters to actually not try to arch as much as they usually do and actually keep their back a little bit flatter. Um, so whether it's something that I prefer to get a longer range of motion or whether that's something that it actually happens um, because of the shoulder mechanics, I think it's actually part of both. Um, because the grip's lower and the... Um, sorry, because the grip's narrower and there's less arch, there's obviously going to be less range of mo uh, more range of motion. And we're going to see a more forward and back trajectory of the bar. So the bar is going to travel further forward. It's going to touch slightly lower and it's going to shoot back a little bit further than it usually would because of that. Right. I agree pretty well entirely so far. Um, the only thing I might add is talking about like shoulder positioning and how wide the grip is. I tend to think of like bench press grips on a continuum. So if you are like a very, very wide gripped bench presser, then obviously any movement in is still a closer grip than your normal bench. And I often break things into like a close grip bench, mid grip bench and comp grip bench, where if you're a wide gripped bench and you move in like by about a hand, that might be a mid grip bench press, then any narrower than that is close grip. For many people that ends up being just outside shoulder width grip, but say for myself, I find it so uncomfortable being that narrow that my close grip bench is, you know, maybe half a hand wider than that. And you will still get 
as you move your grip in, you'll get a graded movement towards those those changes that Alex described, that more um, up and down or like forward and back movement of the bar, that, um, what, what else did you say, that slightly lower arch, longer range motion, all those things happen in a graded fashion as you narrow your grip. And so if you're trying to train this variation, then finding a balance between comfort and execution and getting those benefits is important too. So it might yeah. be that you don't need to be maximally close to still get all that stuff. Yeah, generally what I would recommend is is shoulder width grip, but for some people, like you mentioned, for yourself, it can be uncomfortable. Mm. Um, if we if we get like that winging of the scap, it can get a little bit painful at the front of the shoulder. Um, and then, like you said, I I consider close grip to be generally shoulder width or as close as you can to shoulder width without pain. And then mid grip to be halfway between whatever your close grip is and your competition grip. Yeah. All right. Um, now the other thing that Alex didn't mention, but that is related to the moving up and down of your torso um, that happens with this movement is that we also usually see less abduction of the humerus. So less like elbows flaring out wide during the descent. So if you think of a very wide gripped bench press, normally people's arm will travel out almost like horizontal to their body, right? So there's that big space between, um, between your humerus, your upper, upper arm and your torso. You might be at like nearly 90 degrees looking at your shoulder there. Um, and so that's, that's abduction or horizontal abduction at the shoulder. And that's, that's one of the movements that loads your chest because your chest does some horizontal adduction and flexion of your shoulder, right? When we do a close grip, because our elbows are narrower and staying closer to our sides, we see less abduction of the shoulder, which means the pec gets less stretch. And so although we have to do a lot of shoulder flexion work, which is still, which is still involving the pec, it, what you tend to see is a little bit of shift in muscular demand towards the front delt and the tricep and a little bit less towards the pec itself. Um, so when we then, so that's how we sort of start translating these biomechanics into muscular demands. We go, we have a longer range of motion generally, right? So there's more work in the mechanical sense per rep um, for a given load. And that work is mostly being carried by shoulder flexion, right? And um, an elbow flexion and extension. And for many people, if you do end up flattening the arch as well, you're going to see that when you touch your elbow is bent to a greater degree that it might be bent when you, um, when you touch in your normal bench press as well. So that means the tricep is not just going to be doing more of the force producing work. It's going to do so from a greater position of stretch. And then when we think about that as well, because the sticking region in our bench press tends to be shortly off the chest through till, you know, short of lockout by maybe like a third, a quarter of the range of motion, that sticking region also gets much, much longer. Right. So, so those are a few big changes that I say, Alex, does that all ring true to you? Absolutely. So then I guess when we think about that, we say, okay, so close grip bench press, um, we've got slight changes in, in our bar trajectory and we've got extra emphasis on the front delt and tricep, especially, um, what benefits would we get from programming close grip bench press? Well, I think you can look at it from either you can get a technical benefit or you can get a muscular benefit. And I think, this one falls in way, way, way more in the camp of muscular benefit than technical benefit. Because I think the things that you mentioned earlier that the close grip bench does is actually takes away from what we want to teach with the competition bench press, those elbows directly under the bar, that shorter, that shorter bar path, that sort of scapula that's stuck to the bench press. And all of those things aren't the case 
with the close grip bench. So I think it falls right in that muscular muscular benefit camp. And so because of that, it's going to be useful um, generally in higher volumes, generally when we're in uh, phases that are quite far away from competition, um, which are going to lend themselves to lifts that have slightly longer range of motions with reduced load. So I think that's probably the best place to start there. Would you agree with that, Will? I would um, broadly. I'm just going to play devil's advocate though and say there are a couple of times when when close grip bench might actually really serve as well as a technical variation. So one might be particularly for like much larger male lifters who don't bench with as high of an arch. Like I'm saying male lifters because this is where you typically see it. Um, people who don't bench with as, as high of an arch and who don't have as wide of a grip generally and who do bench with a little bit more elbow tuck and a slightly lower touching point generally, for them, the close grip bench press we're describing is going to be less of a deviation from their competition technique, but it's going to exaggerate the importance for them of getting that initial kick back towards their face and letting their elbow flare out under the bar a little bit that you need to power yourself through the sticking point if you bench like that. So if you are somebody who benches like that and is finding that you're actually pressing a little bit too straight from a low touch point, which is going to penalize you in the sticking point, then close grip might actually have some technical benefit for you. So in that instance, it may be worth using close grip. And there are some other times when I might think that close grip is actually a really good idea to use in the later training phases as well, um, which we'll get to again when we get to that. But broadly, I do agree with what Alex is saying is it's a really, really good lift to say, okay, I've got a muscular weakness. I really want to smash it with something. Um, that lets me work through long range of motion with decent amounts of weight, but not as heavy as my comp lift. Um, Alex, when you when you talk about using close grip work, you're saying it's probably best for hypertrophy phases. What types of loading would you tend to do and how would that sit relative to, say, the bench press itself? Sorry, you just cut out for a second. I missed the second half of that. I apologize. So I was saying, um, you're saying close grip bench is really good for hypertrophy phases. Um, how would you typically program it in those phases and what types of loading would it, would you see relative to a normal bench press for most people? Well, like you alluded to before, it depends on how your bench press, bench press technique is in competition. If you are slightly narrower, you'll see obviously a closer gap between your close grip and your comp grip because the technique itself is closer. Um, but Generally, somewhere between 85 to 90% of 1RM is going to be roughly what your close grip 1RM is. Would you agree with, with that? Yeah, it's probably not far off. It might be a little bit less in some instances. It's rarely much more than about a 15% discrepancy that I can think of. I can think of a few people who um, fit this uh, build of like very far on the like m- making the most of the rules bench press technique, short arms, high rib cage, max grip width, big arch, um, you know, wide elbows, all that kind of stuff. I think I can think of Matt Bartholomew is a good example. And Chrissy's a good example. Mm, Chrissy um, can't close grip. And those, those two, if you like took their arch away and put them to actually shoulder width, they're probably losing 20% off their max. But again, those are kind of rare, rare cases. So I think, yeah, somewhere between 85 and 90. And as far as like, loading and programming of the close grip goes we're going to use similar percentages of the close grip max that we would with the competition max for the same rep ranges so if we're looking at eight to 12 reps it's probably somewhere in the 65 to 75 percent of your close grip max yeah look more or less agree entirely um 
And I think, what was I going to say? The one thing that you might that you might see when you're training quite a lot of close grip is because that sticking region is so kind of long, is that sets will really abruptly go from like quite easy to quite hard. And I, this is like complete pocket theory stuff. It's got no scientific backing. But I actually think that like the benefit of your close grip reps is probably highest once they do start to slow down. Because if you're able to kind of carry yourself through the hard region with momentum, then you don't get the same benefit to like your triceps um, grinding strength as you, as you do when things get kind of hard. So particularly when I'm using it for, um, for like hypertrophy, I actually kind of want to see reps beginning to slow down. So I don't want the proximity to failure to be like so outrageously far that they never slow down in their reps. And because the because the load is going to be less than your normal bench, you probably can afford to push it a little bit further with the RPE stuff. You probably want to be looking at seven to nine RPE most of the time. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, now there are a couple of times I really actually like close grip in strength phases. Um, Sorry, one, before you go before you go into strength phases, I wanted to touch on a little bit more of technique stuff. Yeah, go. Um, one thing that the close grip can help with is learning to engage your lats in the descent and keep your sort of shoulders in depression. If you are someone who like elevates a lot in your, in your, um, in your descent and your elbows get behind the bar, this can be a good way to teach you to get out of that habit. When but you say think, behind the bar, do you mean like up towards your face of the bar or towards your feet of the bar? To, uh, behind the bar. If you were looking like bird's eye, so like, back towards your head yeah okay was that it yeah that was it okay good <laughs> um no i agree okay so there's a couple of times i think close grip can be really good in strength phases so one is obviously like if you are needing to if you are saying you have a tricep strength discrepancy for one reason or another or you just find that like when your close grip strength goes up your your main bench press goes up it's probably really good to continue training it with moderate to heavy loads during a strength phase. And particularly because I was saying, like, I think that you get the most benefit from it when reps do start to slow down a little bit. If you're actually suddenly training in like the four to six rep range in the 70 to 80% of your close group max range, you're probably going to get like a lot of transfer um, from doing the movement then. So it can be a really, really good secondary movement in either like an early strength phase or moving into a more specific one. If you can actually sustain two, two heavy bench loading um, sessions per week, I think it's a really, really good bang for your buck movement. Then too, the other, the other alternative for using it maybe in a strength phase would be if you do have, if you do have some dedicated hypertrophy work for your bench press in your program, and you found that that's one that sort of plugs a need that you really have, then you could also follow up your main bench volume stuff with a bit of close grip rep work as well. Again, reasonably close to failure. Alex? Yeah, and I think you'll kind of gather enough information during those earlier phases whether this variation is going to be suitable for that lifter to continue. And if it has been going really well and they've been making nice progress and they're, they're enjoying it and they're not getting beat up and not getting any niggles in their shoulders, it's probably a good idea to continue doing it. Like you're not going to cut a certain variation short just because you think it should be swapped. Like if you are, if you are getting the right um, response from it, then you should continue doing it. I also think during strength phases, close grip pause bench can be really, really great because when you pause on a close grip, it makes those, it makes that sticking point way, way, way harder. Like it comes out 
it comes out almost out of nowhere after like one or two reps. Like you mentioned earlier, the sets get really hard really quickly. It happens even quicker if you add a pause in. And I think that can be really, really good to sort of simulate a grinding a rep in competition sense. Yeah. The only caveat that I'd put around this obviously is like, if you are doing heavy strength work and you're trying to push your numbers up and you find that close grip is like, is addressing a real weakness that you have, but it does force you to grind and you actually do find it really disproportionately fatiguing. Then you've got to think like where in your training week, are you going to put your harder close grip stuff so that you're not still carrying a lot of fatigue when you go into your heaviest bench work. And so it may be that it's worth putting it after your main bench work or just separating it within the week as much as you can so that you're not coming in tired when you actually do want to perform well on your main lift too. So you got to sort of balance the variables and balance fatigue with that. But that's a probably general rule in all training. Yeah, and it's going to be less so with the bench press than with you know the squat or the deadlift. With a sort of heavier squat or deadlift variation, you can kind of get away with a little bit um, a little bit more aggressive loading, a little bit closer to each other. Yeah, I'd say that's true. Um, moving into peaking, it's rare that I continue a lot of close grip work into peaking. And again, I would use like a similar rationale to the strength phases. If you were like, this variation seems to transfer really well and you think you can get away with doing a few heavy sets of it, then there'd be no reason to really drop it out. But because it does tend to be technically a little bit different from how most people bench press, and it does tend to be extra fatiguing on something that you might presume is a weakness, you can make a pretty good case for maybe moving away from doing the close grip. And if you feel like you need some extra tricep volume, just doing a few push downs and probably just have a little bit less fatigue. So I'm usually inclined to start dropping it out in those very last weeks of competition, but I'm not dogmatically opposed to using it. Um, Alex, do you sort of have similar thoughts? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, Where I have kept it in is adding in a board, probably a two board just to reduce that end range where the sort of, we do get a little bit of scapular winging in a lot of cases. Mm. Um, It does keep the shoulders nice and healthy and allows you to sort of get some heavy weight for the triceps versus doing a push down or a skull crusher where you can use probably like a quarter of the weight. So I think that's one idea where you can kind of fit it into a peaking cycle. But outside of that, I don't really see, I don't really see why I would pick a close grip variation over like a variation of the comp specific grip like a tempo or a long pause or something else like that. Yeah. I do just generally with bench for me. Um, and for most of my clients, this has seemed to be true is that often you don't need to, because you don't need to taper as much volume as early. There's no like giant imperative to always be super specific for a long time into a peak. So again, for as long as you think it is transferring, I would keep it in, but it is one of those ones where the cost of benefit might start getting a little bit higher in those final couple of weeks where you really do want to start being fresh. So I wouldn't say like 10 weeks out from comp, you got no business doing close group. That's dumb. But in the last couple of weeks, maybe it's like, you know, put some boards in there progressively and then drop it out and do a push down or, or move to something more specific that might be a better use of your time. Yeah. I think in the last sort of six weeks is when you'll, you'll start to see it be gone in probably 90% of cases. Yeah, maybe. I've probably kept it in even longer than that, but certainly certainly, like it's going to be a graded somewhere in that three or four through to like six or eight range where I'm like slowly reducing how hard it's loaded. Mm-hmm. All right. That's, that's more or less what Variation Masterclass is. We do that. You pick a lift. We talk about it like that. 
if you like that segment, let us know. If you don't like that segment and your name's anything other than Kevin Bacon, then just write to us. Maybe leave us a one-star review. We'll take it into account. And we'll, we'll probably name it after you. Name yeah. the segment after you. <laughs> we'll probably... <laughs> now we're going to get so many one-star reviews. We're not going to name any segments after people who give us less than five-star reviews from now on. Um, but we'll probably do that segment you know, every two or three weeks. We'll just whack in a variation masterclass. So feel free to submit things you want us to talk about. But on a more general note, there are questions, Alex, aren't there? There are. So I put up a Q&A yesterday on Instagram and I got some pretty good ones. I've sent Will a list of the best ones I got. Man, there's so many bots at the moment. I know. Just, they're all... Today, did you get the do you like fitness influencers one? Yeah, I got that one and do you like daily nutrition info? And I got like a few like hi at Alex Hayes underscore process. I got a few like... I got a few ones that were blank. Like they just left a space. So I don't understand enough about Instagram to actually understand why it is that these bots are beneficial. Cause never in my life have I gotten a bot response to one of my stories and gone, I better check them out and follow them. So like, I don't understand how it engineers traffic to their channel. Um, but I've noticed the bots are just going absolutely mental right now. And the best, the best thing is there's one bot account called powerlifting hunting and they're not a bot account. Um, like they share powerlifting content semi-regularly, but their, their profile picture is our friend and guest Liz Craven. Um, and they spam me every time I do, I do a question sticker. I get like 10 from powerlifting hunting and they're not even powerlifting related questions. They literally, they must've found me because of the hashtag powerlifting, but they literally ask, hi, how is your day? Every time you know, multiple yeah, or different just, ways. Or just how are you? Yeah, super annoying. Anyway, these questions you, I'm trusting are from not bots, right, Alex? Right. Do you, do you remember, speaking of bots, do you remember the early days of Instagram? Um, I think it was Chris Duffin used to have bots. No, I didn't know that. And he used to comment on like anyone who would hashtag certain things and it would always be like, nice grind, exclamation mark, or like, keep it up, exclamation mark. And it was just like the lamest stuff. No, I don't remember that. But I was like very naive to Instagram for a very long time. So I can't say I'd have like noticed or you cared. You probably thought it was the real Chris Duffin. Yeah, probably. Honestly. All right. These are real right. Q&As though. Yeah. All right. We'll start with... You just we'll start with Andreas Papa 21 Yeah. He put in four questions. I chose the best two. <laughs> Fair enough. Save the other two um, for when we're running out of content. <laughs> yeah. So next ep next episode. Yeah. Um, he says, Hey guys, I love the pod. If you knew 2020 would be like this, what would you have done differently in 2019? Tough question. Um, I don't really know, to be honest. Like, I'm, I mean, obviously like from a purely business entrepreneurial perspective, I would have like, you know, invested a whole bunch of money in subscription based services and like spent time building out a whole bunch of web content for people to train at home and maybe stockpiled a lot of workout gear to on sell. But like in terms of how I lived my life, I wouldn't say that I've got any giant 2019 regrets or anything that I'd have liked to address. I don't know. What about you, Alex? Yeah, I definitely agree with the business stuff. Um, I do think I would have traveled for much longer in European summer last year. So we went to Greece for two weeks um, after nationals. And if I had known that we wouldn't be able to travel again for who knows how long, 
probably would have extended that for like another four, five, six weeks or something like that. Yeah, actually, that's true. I would have taken a, I took a one week holiday at the end of the year. I would have probably taken like a three or four week one. Yeah, so so holiday definitely. Um, and then I probably would have got back from that and then prepped for a competition in February this year and done that. Yeah, like, I, we missed out. We missed out on doing our comp by like four days, so it's like pretty frustrating. But yeah, it's what it is. Yeah, I honestly I don't have any particular regrets in terms of competition. Like my last competition was in December 2019, so I really don't feel like I've mm. been out for long enough to miss it. Um, but I'm I'm generally happy with the trajectory of my life, so not a whole lot probably. Like the things that I'm doing now for business and for fun, I could have started earlier, but the reason I didn't start them earlier was because I didn't need to and they weren't useful to me at the time. So it's yep. all it's all like hindsight is 2020 wink um, stuff, you know? <laughs> so that's it. Yeah. Next Definitely. question. Uh, okay. So also from Andreas Papa 21, who is general genuinely the most sociable bloke? You both seem very outgoing slash great banter. Well, I guess the first thing I want to address is that like, while we might seem outgoing and while you might think the banter is good in reality, Alex is the most boring, unfunny guy. And I have to literally feed him lines using cue cards the whole time that we're recording the podcast in order for him to sound like he has a personality. So what you're really noticing there is just the production value of this completely contrived discussion. Um, But thank you. I'll take that as a compliment on how well we're doing with the show. In terms of who's more sociable, um, I reckon we're sociable, both of us, but in quite different ways. Like, I'll describe myself and Alex can tell you if he thinks it's a fair characterization. That's just a chance to roast me. But like, if I, if I go to a party with a hundred people, I'm much more inclined to like bail up two or three of them and have a long chat and get to know them and have a good time with them and almost like ignore the other 97 for a whole night. And to me, that's a really good time. Um, then I am to like be in discussions with groups of 10 or anything. I'd like, I'd much rather have a one-to-one discussion but I'm quite happy to do that. And then in between, in between being social, I also very much like to have a lot of time to myself. Um, whereas I think Alex, you're more of somebody who would like to interact with a large group at a time. Um, and that doesn't mean that we're necessarily more or less inclined to interact generally. It's just the scale of our interactions might be different. Do you think that's true? I think I'm probably a little bit more sociable than you only in that, like I have more, sort of patient, not more patience, more time to give socially than you do before you like wear out. Yeah. That's definitely like you true. sort of, you sort of have like quite a, quite a short time where you can deal with hanging out with a bunch of people and then you just want to go home and recharge your batteries and be on your own. So I definitely think I'm more sociable in that aspect, but I think you're more sociable in the aspect of meeting new people and sort of like just starting a conversation about absolutely anything that they could be interested in, interested in. Whereas like, I have like five things that I like to talk about and I don't really want to talk about anything outside of that, which is probably not a good trait, but that's just how, how I am. What are the five things? I don't know. Basketball, powerlifting, yourself, comedy, <laughs> and beers. beers. <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably close to true. <laughs> I nailed that straight away. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Like I, I don't find it particularly hard to meet people or talk to new people, provided I'm in the mood to. Like, if I don't feel like talking to people, I would just go lock myself in a closet. But 
but like if I want to talk to people, I'm pretty easy going like that. Whereas I think Alex, I don't know if you, you would say you like keep your walls up for longer or anything, but, but you're probably like less quick to just accept a stranger. Um, I don't know if I'm less quick to accept a stranger. I just don't really, I don't know. It's just, I'm not really good at small talk and I'm not really good at like getting to know people quickly. Mm. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I don't think anybody particularly is. I wouldn't actually say I'm good at getting to know people quickly, but I'm okay to interact with people surface level until I find something where I'm like, Oh, that's a common interest or very often finding something out about people where they know something or have an experience in something that I don't is to me really interesting because that's the majority of people and the majority of things. Like I don't know anything about almost everything. So when I talk to somebody and they're like something pretty mundane sounding, if they say like I work in advertising and I sell slots of, I sell like slots of TV time to companies to advertise stuff to me. I'm like, that's so cool. Tell me about it because I just wouldn't know the first thing about that like what it entails, how you relate to people, what things are worth, what considerations you have. And to me, I'm already interested just on the basis of not knowing. So to me, it's pretty easy to talk to people that I don't share much in common with either because that's the stuff I want to know about them. Yeah. Happy to leave that one? Yep. All right. Thanks for the questions, Andreas. And thanks for the uh, saying you like the podcast. That's cool. Leave us a five-star review, yeah. please. Yeah. <laughs> Might name the section after you, the Andreas Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from Nikki Walt. So at Nikki Walt. Do you think personality is a big enough factor to determine a programming strategy? Um, if you mean like determining a programming strategy in its entirety based on someone's personality, no. But I think if you don't incorporate if you don't incorporate people's personality in training planning, then you're really, really missing a very big piece of the puzzle. And so, so I would say it's not like, it's not sufficient, but it's definitely necessary. Um, I think about, I actually had this discussion on one of my group calls with my clients um, yesterday, talking to, to Chrissy, um, Tom Clark, our co-host from the hundred K episode um, and myself. And we were all talking about like, how we each interpret um, interpret ranges for load selection on a program and what it makes us feel like to make those decisions. And we all approached it very different ways. And, and all of our approaches could be traced back to sort of differences in our personality and, and our drive generally. Um, and, you know, even the, the degree of freedom and order regulation that we give clients is going gonna, is gonna to have to do with their personality how much contrast between heavy and light days we give athletes and, you know, and how absolutely heavy or difficult training is and stuff is going to have to do with, with personality and temperament and stuff like that as well. So I think it is, it's definitely important, but it's just not the only thing you consider because all those things have to be couched within designing a program that actually addresses their needs as an athlete as well. Alex. Yeah. I think the nut, the nuts and bolts of the program don't change a whole lot with different personality types but I do think how you communicate the program, how you deliver expectations, how you talk to someone and then how you sort of manage them on a day-to-day basis is probably the thing that is more important with personality types. Um, how you like how aggressive you would be with someone's peaking program, for instance, maybe it's slightly different to personality, but how you communicate with them and tell them, you know, this is what we're aiming for is going to be vastly different. 
So I don't think the actual programming itself changes at all. Maybe like within like a 5% band, but I think how you talk to them about the training is going to change the most. Yeah. I mean, it also depends like this sounds silly, but it also depends what you mean by personality. Cause like if you take personality as simply like, you know, their emotional state and maybe like how they would be represented on say like the big five personality scale or something, that's one thing. But if you put in, if you put in considerations about like what motivates them in powerlifting, how competent they feel in powerlifting or how experienced they are, um, you know, what their support network is around them and stuff and all these environmental things that, that are going to change how they interact with the training program itself. Then suddenly you go from something that's probably like a minor contributor to one that's pretty major, but yeah, but even then it's like people basically need training of a certain type and it's just how we choose to structure and communicate it. That's going to change to suit the individual. And for something like, like personality, um, and I mean personality in the very broad sense, I just said, there's also only so much you can really change a person. Like if you, you know, you might get somebody who is pretty new to powerlifting and they're reasonably malleable and like, they might be quite anxious and skitter, like skittery when they start training with you and you help coach them through discipline and you engineer some like, or you help engineer, I should say, cause they still do it themselves. You like help engineer, engineer a bit more confidence and a bit more process orientation and stuff. You do that by communicating with them. And maybe by like, maybe after six months or a year, you have somebody who's like personality inverted commas, inverted commas with respect to powerlifting is a little bit different than it was at the start. Maybe they're a little bit more goal directed, a little bit more emotionally stable during training and stuff, but you still don't get somebody from the absolute extreme of just being like a highly strong emotional person um, and take them from that to being like serial killer level of just not caring about anything like that doesn't, that doesn't really happen. So all you're really doing is recognizing like the, the innate constraints in this person's like psychology and trying to communicate in a way that is effective to get them to do the behaviors that you want, which may or may not be enormously different person to person. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Nothing to add. Nothing to add. Swear does. Next question then. All right. Also from Nikki Walt, do you think RPE based training is appropriate for beginners? You know what? No. And anyone who says so is an absolute idiot. I'm kidding. I'm only saying that because, um, because our friends from Melbourne strength culture just put out a YouTube video talking about why beginners must use RPA. Um, obviously clickbaity title, but I actually do think RPA based training is really helpful for beginner lifters and I haven't watched their video. So I can't say whether what I'm going to say is the thrust of it, but I don't think it's inappropriate for beginner lifters at all. I think you just need to, you just need to use some education of which the training will form some part to help them actually understand what they're trying to do. So if you take RPE to mean that you, you basically coach your lifters to get some type of subjective information about how difficult training feels, and then you teach them to see how that relates to the objective difficulty of training. So perhaps, perhaps you get them to do a set and you say, how hard was that out of 10? They say six. You say, how many more reps do you think you could have done? They say four or whatever. And then you actually, you know, test it. If you do things like that, so they start to actually develop that skill set, then you're you're setting up beginner lifters to be more productive and independent trainees ongoing. So in that respect, I think it's really good. It might not be for an absolute beginner the sole basis of prescription because the chances of them having the skills at their disposal to make good training decisions are 
is really low, but you could still like frame some RPE training um, within within bounds that you give people and sort of help develop that skill set over time with a beginner, um, and then eventually give them more and more freedom as they develop more ability to actually use it to make constructive decisions. In that case, then yeah, it'd be totally appropriate and probably just like smart and good coaching. And if you work with anyone in person, almost certainly when you get them to do a set, you're making observations yourself, the coach, and then asking them for feedback subjectively about their experience and using that, using sort of the, the relationships between what you see and think and what they're reporting to you to sort of make some decisions about what their training should be like and what to talk to them about and like how much harder to push them and things, right? So all that RPE-based training in this instance would be is just another chance to do a similar thing. That's what I think anyway. Alex? Yeah, I think if your goal system is to have your clients lifting under an RPE system, then, you know, you have to start introducing them to that system from the get-go. Um, I don't think what a beginner's program, even under an RPE system, looks like compared to someone who's been doing it for five years is going to be the same because it won't be. But if you are, like you said, educating them along with how to go about using that particular system, then sure, it's fine. And like, there's no reason why you shouldn't start educating them from the start so they can be more proficient later on. Yeah. I was going to ask a question. I don't actually know how to frame the question. Well, Alex, so hopefully you'll sort of get what I'm saying, but like really how different is an RPE based system generally from just like a percentage based training system that allows like any degree of freedom broadly. Like, what we were talking about with personality kind of ties into this is that like you're trying to communicate something similar and you're literally just picking the system that most suits you and your mode of delivery and perhaps the client in front of you when you choose to use either of them. Cause I could say do three to four sets of four at 80% one RM to say you Alex on squat. And that's going to be like reasonably hard work, right? For you to do a four at 80% is not super easy. But it's probably going to be like realistic RPE sevens, maybe RPE eight on a tough day and six on a good day. That'd be fair. That's yeah, squatting yeah, 200 ish. Yeah. Uh, like roughly. Yeah. Sure. But say I say that I could have just as well said do three to four sets of four at RPE six to eight. Right. It's not enormously different. It's just, um, it's just the way in which I'm conveying it to you. And so, so I guess RPE, RPE gives us some tools to address some of the variability in performance with people. And it gives the athlete um, more, of a, more of a sense of control over what they're doing, both of which I think are really, really good things. But it's not actually like once you get past the difference on the label, it's not that far different from telling your athlete what numbers to hit and giving them some understanding of that they can change it under certain bounds generally. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. RPE is just a really good system by which to do it, but it's not like an RPE training system is in every other respect, completely different from percentage based training. You're still literally just asking people to do some sets and some reps with some load that's targeted to be difficult enough to make them better over time. And if you lined up a percentage based program or well, not even a percentage based program, but a prescribed load program versus a RPE program, like for me, for instance, I will write in prescribed load and then I'll have my athlete fill out the RPE if you did it the other way around, you'd end up roughly in the same spot anyway, you know, plus or minus five kilos, seven and a half kilos, something like that. And like the difference between the two is so small that it doesn't really matter how you get to that 
prescribed dose. It's the dose that matters. Yeah. And something I've, something I've found is one of like, when I go towards prescribing with one or the other, cause some of my training programs will have an exactly prescribed load and RPE based loading within the same exercise within the same session sometimes, or just across a week, you'll see mixtures of both is when I like, when I use RPE, it's either because I want more freedom and I don't want to anchor an athlete's expectation in a session. Like I want them to know that whatever they do at a six is fine. Whether, whether it's like, say they deadlift 300 kilos, whether they deadlift 250 or 270 at a six in that, in that session is fine. And I want them to feel free to push. That's one reason. And another reason just generally is where I actually want them to, to be less objective and more subjective in saying how difficult things are. So if I give somebody a squat day, like a primary squat day, that's kind of harder and maybe the loading parameters are a bit more fixed and then an easy squat day where I say do four sets of five at RPE five to seven or something um, on that, on that secondary day, I'll often say to them, like be a little bit more subjective with this. I don't mind if you feel like you actually probably could have had more than five reps in reserve. I want it to be like five to seven out of 10 difficult, which shouldn't fall an enormous way different from from that number of reps in reserve but if you're feeling really tired like this is your easiest session this is how hard it should be on paper it should be comparably difficult week to week and we'll titrate the difficulty of that session depending on how we're seeing progress across the program so i use rpe to then again get my athletes just more engaged with the idea of like how hard is training feeling right now and is the work that we're doing in that band of what is productive difficulty or is it falling way outside of it you know yeah, and, and with beginner lifters, we, we need to add those sort of parameters around the RPE. You're never going to go, all right, like first session in the gym, all right, today I want you to hit a single at eight. They'll be like, what the fuck? Are you, what do you mean? Yeah. Like you have to start off with a few more instructions and then gradually funnel them into sort of something that's a little bit less information. Like it might be, I want you to hit a weight somewhere between this weight and this weight for between seven to nine RPE and then gradually go from seven to seven to nine RPE to seven and a half to eight and a half. And then eventually you're at eight. And something so there's, else. There's, there's heaps of ways we can do that. We can, you know, obviously bring the range of load down or bring the RPE range down or just, you know, add certain, certain constraints. Well, the other thing with beginners as well is when you're an absolute beginner, because literally like any training is going to get you better the range of RPEs that you can productively train in is also really, really wide. Right. And, um, sorry, Alex is, you're right. Answer the door. All right. Um, I'll keep going while you do that. So because nearly anything is going to get you better as a beginner, the range of productive RPEs you can train is really, really high. And so to some degree, like I'm going to mute Alex, um, to some degree, to some degree, like you want to embrace that subjectivity, because you know that like that a lot of training is going to get you better. Like it doesn't matter whether it's super easy or super hard. So you can get people to do things that are, that are with 10 reps in in reserve as a beginner, it's going to get them better anyway. Um, So saying, Hey, I just want things to be five or six out of 10 difficult. If in week one, that means they're actually 10 reps in reserve. um, They're 10 reps in reserve set by set, but they get better. Then the next week when you say, Hey, last week we're only pushing to five or six out of 10, let's try and push to like six or seven out of 10 if that's going to get them marginally more proximal to failure, that still might be sufficient to get them better that week, 
before you even start actually introducing actually introducing that more objective element of of telling them okay this is how many reps in reserve you actually have like you know let's do a test and we'll see and so on so again subjectivity when you're when you're early in your training career really useful tool um rpa really useful tool but it's really not that different from just any other training method that we would use hmm. new question next question from at ria.dpt so her name's Rhea and she's a PT. On average, how she long might, would you She program... may be a doctor of PT. A doctor of physical therapy. Yeah, you never know. Or maybe it's Rhea.pt. Maybe. Anyway, Rhea or she says... could also be the Rhea department. Are you going to let me talk? Or are you going to keep cutting me off? As soon as I stop thinking of DPT things. <laughs> okay, now I'm done. On average, how long would you program GPP? And is it always indicated? You want to take it away? I'm not really sure what the last part of the question means. Is it always indicated? Like, is it always worth your time to have a GPP phase? I presume is what she means. Is it always necessary? Okay. Yeah. Like, is it always necessary? All right. So I don't think it's always necessary. I think it depends on the lifter, the lifter you're working with. And it depends on uh, the phase of training that they are in before this next phase. So if you're someone who lifts really heavy weights and just on a competition prep and you're really beat up, that's probably a good time to use a GPP phase. Or if you're someone who's been doing the comp specific lifts for a long, long time and you need to sort of recondition yourself and do some general movement again, then that's probably a good idea to do a GPP phase. But if you're outside of those constraints and you're sort of just a uh, somewhere between beginner and like middling level intermediate, I probably wouldn't recommend doing a GPP phase. Um, as for how long it would be, it could be anywhere between two and eight weeks. Um, and that, again, that's going to depend on how far on the spectrum you are. If you're really, really, really beat up and you need a long, long time to sort of get your conditioning and work capacity back and your moving variability back, then you may need up to eight weeks, but probably going to be, three to five weeks, I would say. Um, I was just trying to think about this question from a slightly different tack as you spoke. Um, because like in terms of what you just said then, there was pretty much nothing I would like, nothing I would disagree with. Um, but like, so GPP stands for general physical preparedness. And pretty much all that means is like fitness qualities that aren't absolutely specific to, to like your actual training requirements. So, so if you're a powerlifter, like obviously the things that we need are maximal strength, technical abilities in powerlifting. And so you put those two together and you have like sports specific strength capabilities in each of the powerlifts. And GPP might be like general aerobic fitness, some flexibility, um, movement in movement patterns that are not tested at all in the powerlifts or things like that. And because as powerlifters, we think of powerlifting as being like testing your one rep max, G GPP tends to be sitting at the far end of the intensity spectrum. So light lifting, um, perhaps really fast paced lifting and explosive stuff, um, aerobic based work, just stuff that is really, really general. And so you can have really, like you can have a dedicated GPP phase that is in for active rest recovery, deliberately, deliberately implementing a lot of movement variability to keep you healthy after a comp. And this type of stuff that Alex was saying, in which case all the boundaries he gave was really good. Um, 
on the other end of the spectrum, you could say, you could look at a lifter and say like, we're doing a general amount or like we're doing however much powerlifting work that we're doing in order to get better. But just to sort of plug the holes in this person's physical package, we should probably be, um, we should probably be doing a little bit of aerobic work or a little bit of movement in different planes or perhaps doing some stuff that gets you lifting more explosively, whatever it happens to be. And so an example where that might be the case would be if you have a lifter who is say a very heavyweight lifter whose work capacity in training is really, really limited by just a lack of aerobic fitness, they may actually get tangibly better at training and therefore better results by having a day a week that is dedicated to doing some higher rep circuit style work, which you could do in anything. It doesn't have to be powerlifting at all and or some light cardio. And in that instance, they might be doing GPP continuously um, during blocks for like three or four months while still actually doing mostly training work. On the other hand, you might have somebody where you look at them and you go, your, your training tolerance is really high. Like you get through lots of work really well in all your sessions. You don't have any niggles or anything. There's no real need for us to do anything other than just train for powerlifting for you to be prepared enough to continue to train for powerlifting really well. So don't worry about it at all. And sometimes you'll have people who just by virtue of like having an active job or playing other sports or whatever, have GPP in their programming or GPP in their week completely inadvertently just because they, they live a life outside of powerlifting. And so, so you can use a GPP phase, like I said, for restorative purposes after a comp, but otherwise I just look at the person and say, basically are there fitness qualities that are holding this person back as a trainee? that aren't really specific to powerlifting, is it worth training for them right now? And if so, should I whack some in the program? And occasionally the answer is going to be yes. And if it's not, then don't bother. Any thoughts on that, Alex? No, that was good. We're an audio podcast, so you can't just nod. Um, you got to you gotta say like word and shit while I'm talking. Like whenever I pause for breath, go like, uh-huh and amen and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's it hype me um, that's what I think rear department next next um, from Tony.Zapier so this wasn't actually a question but it was a statement that we can turn into a question it, it's actually just based. two clauses it's not even a statement when you think about it because like there's there's no like direction so this is literally just two clauses Programs based around one competition lift a day versus multiple lifts in a training sesh. Well, I'm going to take that as a comment because that's how it's phrased. Um, look, the evidence seems to be that, um, that the benefits of higher frequencies for powerlifting training are mostly or nearly entirely related to the additional volume that it lets you get in for a lift. And for reference, you can look up a 2018, I want to say, meta-analysis with the lead author, GRGIC, but our friend Tim Davies, who was on the show, um, was a co-author of that paper. And they look at that. So, so what that means in practical terms is, um, is if you're only doing a few sets per week for each lift and that's all you can recover from or all you have time to do, and it probably doesn't matter whether you do them in one day or across multiple occasions in the week. However, there is a practical limit to how much volume you can do, particularly of hard work in a given training session, because as we train, we do accrue fatigue within the session itself. Um, 
and you know high levels of neuromuscular fatigue obviously limit force output they limit like how much weight we can lift which means that the volume of work we do becomes less productive over time um, but they also can impair technical performance too and although power lifts aren't enormously complicated it's still important that you do most of your reps reasonably well um, so if you're getting to the point where you're doing more than maybe i'm gonna just draw a line in the sand and say five sets that are actually kind of hard for a given movement per session. It's probably going to be to your benefit to spread them across the week, just so that you can do the volume with higher quality. And if you're trying to get more than say six or eight sets in, in total for a given lift, then almost certainly you're going to do better splitting it across, um, across a couple of days. And it's going to become incredibly impractical to do that much or more in one. So at that point, you you do either have to train lots and lots of times per week or start training multiple lifts in a day. Um, so that's the first consideration is basically just how much volume can you reasonably do in a session and how much do you want to do in a week? Think about it like that. The second one is that there's some evidence that the order of exercises that we perform in training has impacts on our strength adaptations and that the things you do first are going to benefit the most. So again, if you have lots of volume across the week and only some of it is actually pretty hard, um, but you're having to spread your training across multiple days, then maybe thinking about the way in which we order your competition lifts for the majority of your training. So that the ones that are doing the hardest work or that are like the priority for that day are trained first is also a smart idea. Little caveat for that is perhaps as you're getting closer to competition for the sake of specificity, you do things in the order that you do them in comp. But otherwise, you got to think if you're training multiple lifts in a day, which one is the one that I really want to train the hardest and which one is just doing some top-up volume. So those would be the two things I'd think about. But just generally, both are workable. High volumes, you're pretty much going to have to regress to number two. Alex? Yeah, I think as we progress in our lifting careers, it's going to be almost unavoidable or unavoidable that you have to do at least two lifts in a given session, at least a couple times per week. Um, it's going to be very rare that you're going to be able to get in enough work in just well, enough pr productive work in just one session of squats, for instance, instead of splitting those squats over two days. Um, and in particular with the bench press, like, you know, most people are going to be benching upwards of upwards of three times a week. So unless, you know, you're training seven days a week, it's going to be hard to get those bench press sessions in without pairing them with that, with another lift. And I, I do agree with your consideration on, um, putting the priority lift first in the session. So that's going to mean like your main bench press day should be first first. And if it follows with squats or with deadlifts, then they can come next. Um, and then the same thing applies to the other lifts as well. I do also think it's important to note that um, a lot of lifters struggle with competition deadlifts because they do them after squats and bench press in actual competitions. So there is some, um, value in doing all three lifts in the same session in the lead up to competition to get the experience and etc. to be able to deadlift under fatigue. I think that's overlooked. How good of a skill is it? Sorry, I'm going to make fun of you. How good of a skill is it when you're like, when you're speaking, um, you know, and you just run out of stuff to say, to just be able to drop in, etc., and as such, to just flesh out a sentence so that it sounds better, you know? And I didn't even put in a second example there. I said one thing, etc. <laughs> you nailed it. And you said it with such authority that I was like, far out, that was smart. Um, the one time I would say that training one lift a day 
has been really, really good for me um, has been when I had like dedicated off season phases for hypertrophy work though. And like that might, it might be that I do some squats and then I still do some like hip and hamstring work, but I just do it all machine based or whatever those days. And that just makes like doing those sessions much more tolerable. And it means that my output on those, um, on those accessories is just way, way, way better because I'm actually hitting them with some energy and enthusiasm. So like if you're not in the prep for a competition or not doing a strength phase, maybe you can get away from it. And I've personally found that to be really good, but yeah, for the most part, I think you're just going to find that you have to do more than one. Yeah. And if you're a complete beginner, you can probably just do squat bench deadlift once a week each and then fill in the rest of your slots with stuff that sort of resembles it, but isn't with a barbell. Um, and you're probably going to be fine there too. Word. See how I hyped you there by the way, Alex, instead of nodding. Okay. Next question. Next question. Uh (laughs) (laughs) From Jack motivate. What would you do with an intermediate lifter who regresses on a specific lift? I believe he's talking about himself and his deadlift. Yeah. Pull the slack motivate. Have you tried that? (laughs) Um, what would you do? Well, the first thing I'd do is fire your coach. Um, <laughs> maybe hire his mate. So Alex coaches Jack. Do you actually want to take this question away first and not address Jack specifically, but you can? No, I, I think Jack's actually progressing quite well on all three lists right now. So I don't think he's talking about himself. Yeah, there's Alex is, just going and saving once. the brand publicly as best he can. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think the first thing you need to do is do a little analysis on the lifter. What have they been doing for training? Have they been consistent with their training? Have they been adherent? Um, has their body weight gone up or down? Um, do they have new technical weaknesses that are only just popping up and haven't been present for a long time? And that's what's causing the um, regression. But when there is aggression regression, we have to try and figure out why. And then once we figure out why, then we can go about tackling how to fix it. I think like, obviously that's where you need to start. Yeah, I agree. And like, it's a bit like when people say like, I've lost heaps of muscle. Um, When you like, you know, when you have a decent baseline of muscle, provided you actually eat some protein and go to the gym and train hard ish. It's hard to like, it's hard to lose drastic amounts, you know? And similarly with strength, like if you're actually doing strength training that on paper looks reasonably productive and you're training quite hard, like you may, you may regress a little bit. Um, but that's not going to be because you've completely lost all your baseline capability. Usually what you're seeing is like some ex- like some excessive fatigue and maybe a bit of a loss of technical touch and like some things that are more transient that are showing up in reduced performance. Like unless you're, unless you know you're like going through anthropause and getting really old and like your limbs are falling off and stuff you probably haven't actually gone backwards 10% say you're just you're coming off the back of some training that's obviously fatigued you more than it's improved you or there's something there's something going on in your like peri training environment that is actually causing your problem so i do think having a bit of an analysis of what your trainings looked like what your life and environment and stuff have looked like is going to it's going to yield you more more positives than um than sort of getting too worried about like actually having gone backwards but that should also be a little bit heartening because because if it is just that like you're not expressing your best performance it may actually be that that what you see as regression 
is not actually a regression at all and that you may when you fix things um sort of progress anew at an accelerated rate and so here and there like i've had phases in my own training um in my own training where like my performance has felt pretty average and i haven't lifted too well and everything's been kind of tough and i haven't been hitting pbs and i've been like wow like everything just feels a little bit harder than comparable loads have before and then one or two things click and I start recovering better and I start training better, even though nothing enormously has changed in my training qualitatively. And suddenly I'm moving in leaps and bounds in the head of where I was. And so I don't think that necessarily represents regression followed by giant progress. It just, it just represents some fluctuation around a probably more stable baseline than, than you can see, you know? Yeah, definitely. And the other thing is, um, we can often think that a, a lift has regressed if it's stagnant and the other two are growing because in relation to the other two, it has regressed when, you know, it's hard to predict which lifts are going to progress at a given time. So we can obviously often take that for granted in that, like sometimes it's just harder to push one lift than another. And it's hard to predict when that's going to be the case, but that's just kind of, that's just kind of part of the course with this sport is that you kind of have to just, hang around, keep hanging around and it's going to come. So I guess communicating that with the lifter that like, you know, we all go through periods where we feel like our performance is down or where we stagnate, but you know, you will make that breakthrough if you just keep at it. And the worst thing you can do is like have that negative mindset about regression or about stagnating because then you won't approach the training with a productive enough mindset to actually get the work done efficiently. Yeah. And if you spend all your time so concerned about like potential regression that you're constantly chopping and changing in your training approach and you never like dedicate yourself to something for long enough to really ride it out and see improvement, then you actually sort of consign yourself to not progressing when really you could have. There's one other thing I wanted to say um, as well, which is that like, even though I'm going to use the example of the bench press, because like in terms of what we're doing, it's so different from the squat and deadlift. Um, sometimes when your squat and deadlift are either progressing at a really fast rate or are being impacted say, you know, by an injury that shouldn't on paper affect your bench press. You still will see a bit of interference between the two of them. And it's not like, it's not necessarily because of like a direct relationship in muscular fatigue or anything. It's just that like, there's only, there's only, this is going to sound really silly. Um, way back in the day with like Russian sports science, people were talking about this concept of like adaptation energy and how you only have so much that you can like, that you can gain or recover and improve from at a given time. And it needs to be directed in certain ways and stuff. I can't even express that idea because it seems so silly. Um, I'm not talking in terms of that, but there does just seem to be, it does just seem to be that not everything will progress at once, even if everything is fine. And sometimes some global fatigue, from your renewed efforts or your improved outputs on one thing will interfere with another. And in the case of injury, it may be that, you know, say you've got a sore back or whatever that's impacting you when you squat and deadlift. It may be that just having a bit flatter of an affect and feeling generally less motivated or being a bit more tentative generally in your lifting because you've had some back pain is going to impact your bench press performance. And you'll think that literally everything is going backwards. And in, in none of those cases do I think it's true. I think it's just like I was saying in my first, my first little ramble is that like your, the performance you express is subject to so many things that sometimes it's just going to be a little bit worse 
day to day or week to week than it is in the weeks or months before and after. Yeah. And, and if we look at this in like a competition context, if you do a comp, like if you do, let's say you do three competitions a year and you've made steady progress across three competitions, but your platform performance hasn't shown an improvement each time, it may just be something like attempt selection where like in, let's say comp one of the year, you let's say bench press 150 kilos. And then in competition two of the year, you did 147 on your second attempt and then you missed 153 like very slow very closely you may have still improved but it wasn't shown on that particular day if that makes sense yeah absolutely it does you could be two and a half kilos better but you just you don't see it because you went for three yeah that's all you're saying yeah yeah that's right all right all right um i really need to go to the bathroom so let's take a quick break (laughs) we'll take a break and be right back Well, we're back on Weekly Weights. It is episode 99. Um, Alex, how are you feeling? You glad you've gotten that out of your system? Very relieved, Will. That's good. Um, got to relieve yourself here and there. We got another few questions. Do you want to introduce it? We do. So from Southall Gaines, best cue that quote unquote forever changed your lift in your training career. Um, maybe do one for each lift. Maybe you can skip bench because you know. I was gonna say so squat definitely people saying up, 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 up that helped. Bench being told it's all you, bro. When people were helping me off my chest was good. Um, and just deadlift hips, I reckon. Just people saying hips. Those would be my three. What about you, Alex? Well, I was going to actually answer seriously. <laughs> I mean, I like, I'm I'm thinking of serious answers, but I just thought that was too easy to pass up. Um, do you have serious answers? Yeah. So for the squat was um, thinking about even pressure, and that was feeling my feet and my upper back together, and like jamming those two together in my descent and on the way back up as well. So even pressure from back to, to feet that was what helped me probably the most in around 2017, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, bench press was when I figured out how to keep my legs stable. There wasn't really a cue for that, but yeah, I guess just when I figured out how to keep my legs stable, deadlift, definitely pulling a slack out of the bar for deadlift. Um, I used to yank heaps and lose my position way more than I do now. And now I'm able to sort of be a little bit smoother and um, tighter off the floor and hold my position better. Yeah, I I can't say that I've got like really specific cues, but the thing that like helped me the most with squat was learning to brace correctly and breathe. Um, And I want, I can't remember if it was Chris Duffin's breathing is not bracing video or the dark side strength stuff about breathing and bracing. they also did a collaboration with Juggernaut that I did, but I remember the first couple of times I did those breathing drills. Generally, I just felt like a million times better. Um, <clears throat> with my squat, that helped so much. It helped my hip mobility. I just felt way better. Um, for bench press, 
on it. I mean, I'm struggling and it's not just because my bench is a meme. Um, but like with bench, I just basically made mistakes and made mistakes and made mistakes until I have regressed to basically where I am now. Um, just always making mistakes? Yeah, but actually there is one, there is one thing that has really, really helped generally. And that was in my setup, like keeping my chest high during the unwrap. Cause that just helps me. Um, that helps me in setting my shoulders into depression, maintaining retraction. Um, so basically thinking of driving my traps into the bench and keeping my chest up as I unrack helps heaps. Um, and whenever I bench best, I'm doing that well. And then deadlifting, there were a couple, one was, um, one was thinking of even foot pressure in the same way that Alex did. Um, because at that stage, I was already pretty comfortable in taking the slack out and having my hips higher. That was number one. And number two was not necessarily thinking about trying to get the bar moving quickly, but more about thinking of just keeping myself stiff. Those two things, those two things really, really helped my deadlift. But I can't say there was like particular cues that, that evoked any of them. They were just like lessons I kind of learned over time. But one thing with cueing is it's like, we've spoken about this heaps on the podcast. It's not really about saying words to people. Like the words don't actually mean anything. They're just, you're just trying to evoke some type of an action and you teach that action by actually getting people to do stuff, whether it's like, whether it's a variation of the movement or, or like through demonstration or like moving their body for them or, you know, or whatever it happens to be some drill. Um, all you're trying to do is like, is teach them a position or a movement and then evoke that through the verbal cueing and the cue itself is like the least important thing of that whole process. Because really, like motor control and awareness comes comes intrinsically from the person, and it should be pretty much entirely subconscious by the time people are competent at something. So, so yeah, the words pretty much don't matter. It's that whole process that matters. Yeah, the words create a, a feeling during the lift for the individual. Yeah, and that feeling is what we're trying to replicate. And if saying those particular words that do evoke that feeling is what evokes that feeling, then great, that's a great cue. Yeah. But it could be like we could use the cue chest down or the cue chest up and we're trying to get to the same place in doing both of those things that sound like they're opposites. Yeah. So like, like there, are, there are no magic cues is kind of the conclusion. It's like, you know, make mistakes and feel things out and go with what feels and looks better and that'll gradually find itself over time. For sure. All right. Also from Southall Gaines, strategies for tapering advanced versus beginner lifters. I feel like this is one that we've covered quite a lot on the podcast, um, but I'm just going to say in principle what I think. Yeah, just do a quick one. Yeah, so for more advanced lifters, they're typically going to need a slightly longer taper and they're going to need more specificity in their training generally um, as they approach competition. So, so you're expecting that volume might reduce usually over a slightly longer time scale, but definitely more abruptly. And they're also going to have to reach higher intensities in their training, probably to be fully prepared to lift. Um, and so obviously part of the reason why volume might come down in their case is to allow them to do that. Um, whereas for more beginner athletes, you may not need to really taper at all. And they can pretty much just train into a competition doing general strength work. There's not a huge lot of like specific skill that they need to express. They just need to sort of broadly get stronger. And then what you, what you might do is like do all your training and then do one heavy session on the Monday of the weekend, then have a pretty easy week into a weekend competition. And that's it. So, 
So one takes a lot more long-term planning and a lot more working up towards pretty heavy loads and refining technique. And another one is pretty much just train as normal, continue developing general strength qualities and then stop. Alex? Yeah, I, don't, I don't have anything to add to that. That was Sweet. a good summary. We've got whole episodes on talking about beginners, intermediate and advanced athletes and how we prepare them for comps, don't we? Mm-hmm. And we've also got a peaking program comparison, don't we? We do. Yeah, well, there you go. You can listen to there's four more downloads for us, Chris Apple. Please do that. You yes, don't get to 100K you, by resting on your laurels, Alex. You, you reference people to your own work over and over and over again, you know? That's why I'm doing Weekly Wednesday on uh, the Instagram page. Yeah, Those of you who don't follow Weekly Weights podcast, go and follow it. I've got like 208 followers. It's good times. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. All right, last uh, last group of questions from Raman, Raman Wadwa. Uh, he asked like eight questions and I've just picked three that we can answer pretty quickly. The others were like quite in depth and we may be able to do entire episodes on them. So thanks for that, Raman. Uh, the first one, what is your biggest pet peeve at powerlifting meets? Um, okay, there's a couple. One that actually really gets to me is just when lifters are like discourteous to the people actually helping run the competition. Um, that one probably annoys me the most because generally I've, I've got like pretty big hangups about manners and like respect of other people. Um, so, you know, people who like drop the bar don't thank the spotters, like give the referees grief, um, you know, and just like disrespect the gym that's hosting it by like leaving heaps of rubbish around or just being generally rude. That really annoys me. And most people aren't really bad like that. But if you do carry on like a tosser and treat people badly, then I'm going to think you're a dick. That would be number one. Um, And then number two, I know this is a bit of a pet peeves of Alex. It doesn't annoy me as much as him. Um, but when people, when you're like, when you're doing your warmups or you're trying to warm your athletes up and people who have not planned or prepared or who could be doing things elsewhere, sort of obstruct you or try and use your equipment, um, or want to jump in on your equipment to load something very inconvenient when there might be an easier avenue to do it somewhere else in the venue. So say you're like, you're warming up your athletes to squat, they're going to open at 210 kilos. There's 170 on the bar. And like somebody jumps in and they've messed up their warm up and says, can I do 70? And there's like, there happens to be an empty bar, two racks down. That annoys me a little bit too. But the reason I'm a little bit more generous with things like that is often the people who are making mistakes like that are also people who are really new to the sport, who like the reason they're messing up is because they don't really know what they're doing. And so it's a bit of an opportunity to like help them out and help them have a better experience. So while that annoys me, it's sort of like, you like I'd rather help somebody in that situation than make them feel shit about wanting to do powerlifting, you know. But if you're rude, then you're just a dick. Yeah. See, my issue with that is more when the coaches are disorganized, and the coach themselves is uh, like jumping around racks when it's more convenient for them. Like if they see 150 loaded, they go and jump on a different rack to do that, and sort of like chopping and changing which rack they warm up on. Um, I think it's probably a pretty good good idea if you are coaching a couple people in the same group to have them both on the same rack and have them stay on that same rack the whole time and it just makes everyone's life easier if you kind of you know let's say you have nine people in the group and you have three racks it makes a lot of sense if there's just three people on each rack 
and you just figure out what order you're lifting in and you just do your warm-ups in the order that you're lifting in. Very simple. Back rooms are pretty crowded as well, right? So like the amount that you minimize people moving around unnecessarily yeah. really helps. Yeah, if you know as a lifter, you are warming, doing all your warm-ups on this rack and you're going to go after this person every single time and you're going to be lifting after that person during the during the rounds, then it's going to be a lot more sort of um, orderly and it's going to feel a lot cleaner and it's going to make you feel a little bit more welcome and like sort of happy at the time. Yeah, like like it, just, be, it gives you a bit of routine and consistency rather than having the whole environment just feel like chaos. Yeah, so I guess that is definitely one of my pet peeves. I couldn't actually think of another one other than that one. Um, Rudeness? Yeah, people putting talc on, not in the allocated talc area and making fucking depth of platform slippery. That really pisses me off. Um, you you get more pissed off more easily than me, don't you? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I'm sort of a bit like, oh, whoops, that was silly. Whereas Alex is like, fuck that guy. So, I don't know. Follow him around at the next comp, Robin, and you'll see a pissed off man. You know what really, really annoys me is if you help someone load their clients weights and they don't help you in return yeah. that really pisses me off yeah for sure like if you if you're sharing a warm-up rack with another coach and you know you're constantly helping their lift to change rack heights and change loads and they're not following they're not following that up and helping you then yeah that really pisses me off yeah and the thing with that is as well like as coaches you're all limited by the equipment that's there. So if you don't help other people when you could, right, and they get thrown behind schedule, then it's actually going to be harder for you when your athletes need to warm up. You know, it's one thing if you like, you've literally finished your warm ups for your athletes and you walk off to talk to them and you're not there to help people load plates. That's fine. But if like you're sharing a platform with another coach and you've got like two athletes and they've got two athletes and you just never help them load and it makes them fall behind schedule, then like you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, and I guess the other thing to follow on from that is not packing up your weights once you're done with warm-ups. If, you know, a group of guys have just finished squat warm-ups, you know, a strong group of guys and the next group to bench press is, you know, the light females and you've left, you know, five plates on one side, on each side and you haven't put the bench in the rack for them, like that's going to be really, really annoying and that's just selfish. Yeah. All right, next question. Who has influenced you the most in the powerlifting world? Um, I read this one quickly when Alex sent me the questions. And I kind of like, there's kind of a few ways I can approach this. So one would be like, um, would be coaches that I've had or worked with or spoken to a lot. Um, so I was coached by Amir Fazeli for a number of years and Obviously, he influenced me quite a lot as a lifter, and I, like part of how I started my coaching was using systems of delivery and programming systems that were similar to his as well. And even now, like I often think back when I'm writing programs, I like think back and think about things that I did and stuff that he did, and what was like good or bad about it, and and like I incorporate those things. So he like he was a pretty big influence on me, and I would say the same thing of you know having both worked with Alex and done this podcast like discussions we've had things we've seen of each other and we used to send each other programs pretty regularly to have a look at and stuff like i opened one of rob flett's first powerlifting programs that you sent me yonks ago alex the other day just because it was in my files and i was curious to look at it like 
you know, those things, those things influenced me a lot as well. Um, working with Bryce Lewis currently, you know, I'm learning a lot of things that I apply. So like on the one hand, I could think of coaches like that, but then there's also a lot of people who I've been exposed to, but not had direct contact with that, that have influenced me a lot as well. And so like, you know, I always mention elite FTS. I read so much stuff on elite FTS about powerlifting before I ever knew that I actually wanted to do it myself just because I was interested. Like I interacted with so much content from juggernaut and, you know, I mentioned Chris Duffin and dark side strength. Um, there were a couple of random YouTube channels that did powerlifting stuff that I watched when I was like 18 or 19. I can't even remember the names of the YouTube channels anymore, but I can remember some of the stuff that they said and the content they put out and like exercises and loading schemes and things they used. And all those things sort of form a bit of a melting pot of influence for you. Like I could say that Shaco has influenced me somewhat as a powerlifting coach, even though I've never run a Shaco program or attempted to write one remotely like it because I've read so much of his programs and like whenever he does something in English, I want to listen to it and get an idea of what he thinks and see how that sort of sits within that body of knowledge I've gotten from other people. So it's very hard for me to like just say this one person is the main influence, but, but certainly there's been people who've influenced me in a lot of different ways. Um, Alex. Yeah. So I've got a few different ways I'm looking at it as well. So as a lifter, as a lifter, which is how I started out, the first person who influenced me to really train hard was Pete Rubis, just watching his videos on YouTube, him just deadlifting like a psycho in his parents' garage. <laughs> yeah, classic. Those videos are sick. And like, even still, I'll go back and watch them for a laugh because it's hilarious. So he was probably the first one. And then there was sort of like some other people on YouTube, Eric Helms and all the guys from 3DMJ started getting into powerlifting and like, 2012 2013 and that's kind of when i started to consider doing it um and then obviously met you will and you were competing we were working together fitness first you you started competing and then sort of probably like nine months or a year later after meeting you i started competing more it was i did mine february 2013 you did december 2014 yeah but i didn't meet you until like March that year, I think. No, you're just you too scared to say hi. Because of these <laughs> muscles, mate. Look at them. <laughs> Go on. That's abs. <laughs> they are looking real fat and not very seppy right now. So, yeah, right. As, as far as getting into the sport, like yourself and one of the coaches I work with at Scott's College, Trent Yee, um, and then just videos on YouTube, that's kind of how I got into the sport. And then who, as far as who's influenced me as a coach, probably the biggest influence outside of the coaches that I've worked with would be Bryce Lewis um, because of what he's created at the strength athlete is essentially what I'm trying to create with the process and the business that I'm trying to sort of create is like a team of coaches, team of lifters. Um, And I really like that idea. Um, And then I guess like you mentioned all the coaches that you work with. So for me, Amir, Hanny and JP, I've taken different things from the way that they deliver programs to the way that they actually program, um, you know, from deliberate load selection or ranges of load selection or RPE stuff. I've done all of it in my, in my lifting career and I've taken elements of all of it and put it into my system now. And then also the stuff that I've done with, um, with Thomas Lilly in developing like a system for teaching technique. And I've kind of started to develop my own system of how I teach the technique and how I, explain it so yeah heaps of heaps of different people 
I forgot to mention Thomas Lilly. Um, and not because I wanted to do so in a positive light, but just like he's a host of Peak Speak, isn't he? Yeah, so that's, that's, I mean, listening to their podcast has influenced me in how not to deliver a podcast service. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would say that's true. Like in the way that maybe like the Joker influenced Batman, like Thomas Lilly has influenced me. He's just an all out bad guy. All right, <laughs> next question. Is this the last one? Who do you reckon is Batman and who do you reckon is Robin? Shero or Thomas? <laughs> Thomas is Batman. Sorry, Shero. Shero is like, he's, they're both actually very like nice people and they're both pretty gregarious. But of the two, if there was one who was going to be like just a little bit too on the laughy side to be a superhero, I reckon it would be Shero. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, interesting question. All right. Last question. Real one. Also from Raman, what characteristics do you believe makes an athlete coachable? Um, I used to, I think I joked about this ages ago where I pretty much just said talent and like large bank balance. Yeah. Um, anyone who's got a credit card. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in reality, like, Obviously, talent plays some part in things because it's easier to teach things to people who are just more apt at learning physical skills. Um, but beyond that, like coaching relies on you being able to have a strong interpersonal relationship. So, so you need people who are open to communicating with you and who are trusting, stuff like that. You, like, you ideally want people, or I've found it really helpful to have people who have like enough um, enough sort of intellectual curiosity or like enough of a desire to learn and ruminate about their training that they are reflective, but not so much that they're like, they get really bogged down in that and don't just go and train. Um, and, but yeah, I think like most of the personality traits you can kind of boil down to just like trust. And then on top of that, yeah, you can layer in some level headedness and curiosity and things. But if you have an athlete that trusts you, communicates with you well, um, you know, and they are curious and genuinely desire to get better at lifting um, and then not a complete emotional head case, then you've got the foundations of somebody pretty coachable. And if you whack in on top of that some talent, then suddenly it's like an absolute breeze to get people better, I think. Alex? Yeah, yeah I agree with all of those ones you listed, but there's also like, just there's got to be an underlying passion. If, if that's not there, then you're not going to get the longevity out of someone. Like if they truly don't have the passion to succeed, they won't last long enough to succeed to the fullest of their potential. Mm. Um, also being able to accept criticism is really important. Um, and that's kind of tied to the willingness to be coached. So the willingness to take on someone's advice and sort of know your role as the lifter and sort of understand that, you know, they guide the ship and you have input, but you don't plan things yourself. It's like, it's a team effort. Mm. Um, and I think that is about it. Yeah, I agree. Um, do I have something to add to that? No, I'm going to say no. There's nothing other than what we've just mentioned that's important for coachability. Oh, and a willingness to actually try hard and like put in effort. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's true too. I think just to expand a little bit on the like passion and desire to get better and intellectual curiosity and all that part of what you see with some people who are, who are quite coachable is like, they'll come to you when they have a problem 
and they'll be like enthusiastic about finding a solution. You know what I mean? So rather than mm-hmm. being like, just, just like disheartened and all woe is me because like something is difficult or something hurts or they feel a bit off. They'll be like, Hey, you know, Hey coach, like blah went wrong today or like, you know, blah hurts. Or I, I feel like I'm kind of stagnant with this. And they'll, they'll often be like, you know, um, what do you think the causes are? Or they'll say, Hey, you know, it might be down to these couple of things. And like, you can tell they've already gone, like, I want to get better at this. Like, how can I invest myself to do it? I have some power to enact change. And like my coach can help me with that. Whereas what you'll get with some other people is like, they'll obviously care about getting better, but they'll come to you and say, like, this has gone wrong. Everything's a disaster. Like, I don't know what to do. And it's all panic stations. And, and like, that's fine as a coach, it's still my job to sort of say, okay, well, like, you know, here are some reasons we might attribute it to here are some strategies we can try and stuff. But like that person who hasn't, hasn't already said I'm invested enough in this to like, to try and think of how we can get out of this problem doesn't strike me as probably having as much innate drive to get better as the person who does, you know? Yeah. But I think some people just want to be told what to do and sort of get in the trenches and work hard. And other people are a little bit more inquisitive about the process of improvement and sort of. Yeah. Perhaps I express myself poorly, but like, I mean, I've like, I've had some people literally say to me, like, this didn't work. I can't do this. Like I am bad or something. And that's a very different response to somebody who goes like, man, that was really difficult. I don't like, I don't think I can handle that movement. I think it's like, I'm really bad at doing X, Y, and Z. But, you know, like maybe there's other ways we can get better at it. Like what are some other solutions? Blah. You know, one person, like one person is just, has just got a fixed mindset of like, I'm not going to get better and my problems happen to me. And one person has a mindset of like, um, I've got to figure out ways to get better. And, and like, you know, there are some things that are within or without of my control and I'm going to try and control the things I can to get better. That doesn't necessarily mean they have to actually be the one making the solutions, but it's just one behavior is reflective of, of you really, really wanting to get better. And one is, one is reflective of you not really having as much belief in the whole training process. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Yeah. All right. That's pretty well, that's all the questions. That's all I have to say. Alex, do you want to do a Kevin Bacon memorial segment? I feel like we have to because we shouted him out. All right. We'll, we'll have a quick break again and then we'll do quick Kevin Bacon memorial overrated, underrated, probably rated. All right. Welcome back to Weekly Ways. It's episode 99. It is the Kevin Bacon memorial segment overrated, underrated, probably rated. Shall I go first or should you go first? Yeah, you can go first for once. All right, Alex. Underrated, blah, 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 blah. This is inspired by your stringers one. Sleeveless yeah. hoodies. Oh, my God. I <laughs> literally... like, to the people who can't see Alex, which is all of you, he almost fell backwards. He just recoiled so far in his chair. Go on. Uh, for practicality's sake, not a bad idea because a lot of our warmth comes from our head. So if you can keep your head warm and you like wearing a singlet at the same time, that's maybe practically okay. But like, fuck, I'm clutching at straws trying to think of any positives about, about shirtless, about sleeveless hoodies. 
So but let what, me. What is worse than sleeveless hoodies is hoodie t-shirts. Yeah, dumb. So dumb. But I'm gonna say overrated because, and I'm gonna give the same um, reasoning for why I gave string as overrated. The fact that anyone and every gym brand seems to sell them and seems to sell a lot of them. So the fact that that many people actually purchase them means that they're extremely overrated. So I'm going to leap to their defense and I actually agree they're overrated. They're a trash item of clothing, but I went to a friend's bucks recently and the theme was basically that you had to dress up as him and he was a sleeveless hoodie wearer. And so I got a hoodie and cut the sleeves off it. So I had it like singlet style hoodie and I'll admit I looked like a tosser, but it was actually really comfortable and I've been wearing it quite a bit around the house. I don't wear it out of the house ever, but what you said about the level of warmth is actually very true. There's times when you want something that sits between a jumper and a t-shirt in terms of warmth. And so often I would find myself in a jumper pulling the sleeves up as much as I can anyway. Sleeveless hoodie kind of occupies that niche really nicely. And the other thing is that like, that when you have a light jumper on and you need a bit more warmth, you can whack a sleeveless hoodie on and it does heat the core up a little bit more, but it does leave the extremities a bit more exposed. And so you just get a little bit more heat balance out of it. So, so giving it that little wrap so that we know that there's the odd time when maybe wearing one's okay. I think they're still pretty average. I just want to make, people who wear them feel somewhat okay about wearing them <laughs> well you did that in, really well in reality they, they fucking suck and you should throw all the, all the sleeveless hoodies you have in the bin immediately no i've kept this one for i think i want to say four months since i made it so that's how much i like it maybe that says a bit about me the fact that you won't wear it outside the house also shows a lot about them yeah no i would never do that all right your turn all right overrated underrated or properly rated metal music for gym training that's niche um that's actually kind of tough because like like when you say metal that's like me saying to you hip-hop like like that could mean so many different things and so many different genres. Right. And there's, um, there's like, it's obviously your gym music is down to taste, but there are some, like there's, there are some broad categories of metal that I can really enjoy when I'm training. Um, and so in that respect, like good, but then there's also some stuff that I'm just not really that into. And I find it really obtrusive. And so, like for myself, me playing it through my headphones, I would say properly rated because when, if I do listen to anything metal ish, um, by which I'm just saying like heavy rock music, um, it's stuff that I enjoy at the right time when I enjoy it. But if I train in a gym and literally for two hours plus the whole playlist is metal, there's a very good chance that a large part of it, I'm not really going to vibe with. And I'll get to a point in my session where like, I just want to go do some accessories and chill out and chat with my mates. And then like, it's not the right vibe, you know? Um, so probably for a whole gym playlist played out loud, overrated, but I can understand why some people vibe it. And then for, for personal use, properly rated. Absolutely. 
What do you think? I think it's properly rated in that the music that you vibe with is personal. Yeah. So you can't really overrate or underrate what you vibe with. And if you don't like it, you won't listen to it. Yeah, but, but that's what I said for personal use. But if I played it to my gym of 100 people. Yeah. I mean, that that's where it differs. That's where it differs. I guess at the moment, we're not training with anyone other than, other than ourselves. So the music we listen to is just whatever we choose to listen to. Um, I do... I have been to powerlifting gyms that are playing metal and it's all right for a one-off. Like I went to strength tribe a few weeks ago um, and there was metal, metal music playing for two hours while we were there. And like, it was a nice change and like, it got me like pretty amped up and stuff, but I think I get sick of it really, really quickly. Let me give you a sort of music theory ish couched explanation for why metal's probably bad bad of an like bad as an idea for for wide public use so like part of what defines metal the the genre is um is like trying to move away from the restrictions that we put on pop music so lots of metal music not all of it but lots of it is longer than the average pop song lots of it experiments with um with tones and melodies and harmonies that don't that don't sort of sit within the pop canon. And oftentimes people experiment with things like time signatures, lyrical content and singing styles that you won't hear in pop music. Right. And that's all well and good. And it's part of what makes metal artistically interesting. However, one of the reasons that pop music is pop music is because it's easily digestible and it's palatable to a reasonably large number of people. And hip hop is really, really highly represented in like both just stylistically within like the genres we would call pop. And when you listen to like pop music stations, you hear a lot of hip hop. And so broadly, like people are not going to find hip hop really offensive unless it's like sitting way out on one end of the spectrum, right? If you just get hip hop that you haven't heard before, all you're hearing in the background is beat driven stuff in a time signature you're comfortable with, with a simple melodic hook and then some guy rapping over it right? And melodic hooks are easily digestible and you can get around them really well. Whereas metal, you might hear something that goes to eight minutes, changes time signature five times, sings about dismembering a corpse and, you know, is distorted the whole time and the guy screams. And unless you're actually like invested in listening to that, then that's not really going to give you like a, a positive listening experience. And the subset of people who are really going to be interested in listening to that is much smaller than the people who are going to find pop music tolerable. I definitely agree with that. I do, I do think the lyrics are important in, I mean, I know for me, the response that I get out of music is a lot lyrically driven. Like I like listening out for lyrics. I like interesting uses of, um, like, uh, into line rhymes and like weird lexical choice. And like, that's kind of the stuff that I look, look to listen to in music. And when I'm looking for a song that's going to like fire me up, I look for like lots of swearing, like quite a like hard hitting vocals and stuff like that. And I could see the appeal for metal in that instance with like, you know, talk, like you mentioned talking about corpses and like very like loud and aggressive use of vocals. Yeah. I mean, like that was obviously like, like a parody of metal there's plenty of metal that doesn't deal with things like that at all and some that's like got very positive lyrical content but yeah like that's true and when i listen to hip-hop so when i listen to like hip-hop and rap music 
I actually look for like musical hooks that I can like very easily vibe with. And obviously that's going to tie into the lyrical content. So like what, what's a really good example of, so like lose yourself. That's like the memeiest, memeiest rap slash hip hop song ever. Right. Like the musical content really supports the lyrical theme. Right. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so, it's so good at actually evoking, evoking the feeling that it's meant to of like drive and determination and stuff. So that's also really easy to do with hip hop music because like pretty much every hip hop song you can think of has like one to two musical hooks that just replay. So I think of still Dre, like it's literally one musical hook the entire time. Yeah. Banger. banger. Great song. Um, like touch the sky, Kanye West, one musical hook the whole time with a few variations. And that's about as, that's about as like much as you explore anything anything in music in most hip hop that you hear, right? Like you see some people push it a bit further, but that's about it. Whereas metal, you have so much changing and stuff across the song that if you're trying to get to the bit of the music where the music is really building in the way that you want, often it's actually like somewhere at the three or four minute mark of the song as well. It's not like, it's not like one thing you're going to hear over and over and over again, relentlessly. It's like, it's a song that changes and the dynamic of the whole song is shaped a certain way. So like, there are some metal songs I actually really like listening to, but I wouldn't feel ready to lift it. Like I wouldn't feel really ready to lift until like two verses in, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think, I think that's actually important. Like I used to listen to the same one minute Drake verse before deadlifts for 30 minutes straight. And I would literally rewind one minute for 30 minutes straight. <laughs> Seriously. What was the I song? I honestly used to do that. Uh, YG and Drake, who do you love? Absolute Good song. banger. Yeah. Great. Such song. a bang, such a banger. And if you were into heavy metal music, I would genuinely consider it like a good idea to find the, the point in the song, which like evokes that feeling and just skip to that. Cause I think like, I think that can actually be really useful if you save it for when you need it, like third attempts or whatever to get you in the right headspace. Yeah, sure. I back that too. But that still doesn't change me from thinking that for personal use, exactly properly rated and for playing in my gym, I would probably limit my metal, my metal that I played. Agree. All right. That's been weekly ways for the week. It was episode 99, which means next week is episode 100. And yeah, Matt, just let me just check if the mass works out. Yeah. All right. While you do that, I'm going to tell you we're having, it works out sick. Um, we're having, (laughs) (laughs) I've, I feel really bad. We're having, I want to say his name is it's Tim. Um, we're having Tim on, Tim Connerts. He's German. He's lifted at Worlds, but he also invented a powerlifting scoring system called DOTS, which is similar to the Wilkes formula. He actually said mathematically it's super similar. Um, and if you're not aware, the IPF has, again, controversially decided to move away from their current point scoring system, IPF points, to something called good lift points. Um, and apparently they're figuring out how to calculate that. And when they made that formal announcement post, there was a whole bunch of people jumping in saying, why don't you just use the dots? And if you go to, um, to I think, powerliftingwatch.com, there is already a dots calculator there. It's been adopted by a number of, um, a number of local federations. Um, so we're going to talk about how he came to that. He actually had some correspondence with Wilkes when he was working on the Wilkes Formula 2. We're going to talk about some of the difficulties of comparing classes and where, where the current calculations have gone wrong and just all things to do with basically comparing people's strength at different body weights. So it should be an interesting talk. 
But Sweet. yeah, why don't we just leave it off there and talk to you then? All right. See you guys later. Peace.